0: To start us off, here is the choir of Guildford Cathedral. The song is, my song is Love Unknown, My Saviour's Love to Me. there we heard the choir of Guildford cathedral with my song is love unknown i do like that line love to the loveless shown that they might lovely be and now it's over to david to introduce a voice new to heart and soul
1: larry gentis lives in Kurt michael and goes to pillock baptist church Larry has written a piece where he imagines himself to be Rabbi Nicodemus going to see Jesus. Here's Larry as Nicodemus
2: now. My name is Nicodemus, and to introduce myself, I'm a member of the leading council uh, in the Sanhedrin. Uh, I was taught in the well-respected school of Gamaliel, so I know my Torah, um, and I'm on the way to meet with a rabbi named Jesus from Galilee. Now, this Jesus really, I don't know what to make of him because the stories that I hear are quite alarming, actually, that he he makes miracles happen, that he, he heals people. And when he speaks, he has all their attention, Now, myself as a preacher, I also know when people are really listening and when they're not. And sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. But when this man speaks, it's electric. He gets all of them. As if he has an authority that is uncommon. So anyway, I'm going to meet with him by night. Not because I'm afraid of what people think. But I don't want to be confused. What I'm looking for here is truth. What is the truth. Who is this man? So anyway, once I got to him, I told him, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, when Jesus answered me, it was quite startling because I had no idea what he was on about. He said, he said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, this really confused me, um, and I just said, well, wait a minute. Can I go back into a mother's womb again and be born again? What What does this mean? And Jesus answered me again, and he said, Unless you've been born of the water and of the Spirit, you cannot enter into the king of, kingdom of God. What's born of the flesh is flesh. What's born of the Spirit is the Spirit. And then he gives me an, an, an analogy of how that works. He said, The wind blows where it will, and you don't know where it comes from, you don't know where it's going, you hear the sound of it, but so is every one who is born of the spirit, and I had to answer him the same way, How can these things be? I don't really understand what you're on about. Now, then Jesus gave me a kind of a rebuke, but I have to say, it wasn't really a rebuke. It was simply stating the facts. Are you a teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we've seen and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? So, (sighs) to be honest with you, that brought me no closer to the direction that I wanted to go in. Because you see, when someone tells me something, if I perceive it as truth, I want to do something about it. And what Jesus is saying is that you can't do anything about it. It has to be given to you. Now, this is difficult for me because all my life, I have believed that you strive for something and you get it. You obey the law and you are blessed. You don't obey the law and you're not blessed. You are cursed. So all of my life has been geared to (sighs) achieving things, to attaining things, and cause and effect. I do this, I get that. Jesus is telling me that there's nothing I can do about that, that it has to be given to me. So what can I do about it? Only ask for it. And God will give it to me. Now, this completely turned my world upside down because all this world is built on achievement and attainment and getting what you work for and all this. And Jesus is saying, well, wait, the wind blows where it will. And you can hear the sound of it and know where it's going, but and you don't know where it's going or where it comes from. But such as those who are born of the Spirit. Now, in conclusion, I don't really know Uh, exactly where to go with Jesus but I do know one thing this man has touched my heart in a way that I cannot deny and even if I don't understand I've got to know more about this man because at the end of the day God is so big that I can't know everything I can't know how he flung the stars up into space I can't know how he created the earth and the heavens and everything in it but I do know one thing This man is saying and
0: doing things that I don't understand, but I have to know more. How about you? Larry Gentis. And we can read about Nicodemus' visit to Jesus in St. John's Gospel, uh, Chapter 3. As part of that discussion, Jesus explains his mission, so to speak. It's incorporated into Stainer's Oratorio, the crucifixion, and here is the Coventry chorale, with, "'For God so loved the world.'" So loved the world. And that was the Coventry Chorale. But it's time for us to go back to David again. Malcolm Geith has
1: written a series of sonnets based on sections of George Herbert's poem entitled Prayer. Today, Malcolm examines the phrase, The Six Days World Transposing in an Hour. It's followed by Voices 8, singing part of Arve Pert's anthem, The Deer's Cry which is based on St. Patrick's Breastplate.
3: The Six Days World, transposing in an hour. 24-7 in the six days world, in endless cycles of unnerving news, relentlessly our restless hurts are hurled through empty cyberspace. Is there no muse to make of all that pain and elegy? or in those waves of white noise, to discern Christ's inner cantus firmus, that deep tone that might give rise at last to harmony. We may not seal it off, nor drown it out, nor close our hearts down in the hour of prayer, but listening through dissonance and doubt, wait in the space between, until we hear a change of key, a secret chord disclosed, a kind of tune. And all the world transposed.
0: something to think about from Malcolm Gite. Dave Barry played our next song on Sounds Inspirational the Tuesday Before Last it was. It's a different singer. He was asking me how old the song was. I didn't know offhand, so I looked it up, and it dates from about 1920, so 100 years old is the answer. Here it is, sung by Donnie Murdo MacLeod from the Isles, and its title is The Love of God. Bonnie MacLeod with the love of God is greater far. It's time for music, I think, and uh, here we have Don Francisco with the, uh, a picture of God holding our hands again. It's I'll never let go of your hand.
4: Afraid to let me near I wish you knew how much I long For you to understand No matter what may happen, child I'll never let go of your hand I know you've been forsaken By all you've known before, when you failed their expectations, they frowned and closed the door. But even if your heart itself should lose the will to stand, no matter what may happen, child, I'll never let go of your hand. The life that I have given you, no one can take away, as I've sealed it with my spirit, blood, and word. The everlasting Father has made His covenant with you, and He's stronger than the world you've seen and heard. you fear to show them all the love I have for you. I'll be with you everywhere in everything you do. Even if you do it wrong and miss the joy I've planned, Come on.
0: Let go of your hand. And that was Don Francisco with I'll Never Let Go of Your Hand. I do like Don Francisco's music. I thought he wrote good tunes, good words, but that's uh, all personal taste, I suppose. Anyway, let's uh, go to David.
1: William Seacart is a publisher who promotes poetry through a poetry prize. He also helps people through his poetry pharmacy. Michael Barclay asks him how it all started. We need all the comfort we can get,
5: and William Seacart is convinced we can find it in poetry. Originally a publisher, he's the founder of the Forward Prizes, given for the best new poetry, He masterminded the permanent poems engraved at the Olympic Park in East London. And it was his idea to have a National Poetry Day, which, more than a quarter of a century later, has become a much-loved fixture in the cultural calendar. And then there's the hugely successful Poetry Pharmacy. At festivals and events, William sits in a tent and people bring him their dilemmas problems and sadnesses and he prescribes a poem to console comfort or encourage the poetry pharmacy has spread to radio for television and hugely successful poetry anthologies described by stephen fry as a matchless compound of hug tonic and kiss so i wonder william if a poem
6: ever helped you in a crisis yes it has um In some ways, actually, it was the beginning of the pharmacy in retrospect. I was crossing the Cromwell Road one day at the age of 23 and waiting for the lights to change. And when they did change, somebody standing next to me walked into the street and a car ran the lights. And uh, even now, 35 years later, I can still hear and see awful images as this man was thrown in front of me, uh, hit by the car. And luckily, somebody in the crowd was a first aider and grabbed me to help. The man's pulse had stopped, but um, the first aider managed to get his heart beating again and then an ambulance came and the police took our statements and I suddenly found myself in the really the same spot I'd been with the traffic flowing again, with no evidence of this traumatic event except I had some blood on my hands. I had learned a poem by Philip Larkin called Ambulances, all about how we feel when we see our next-door neighbour taken away in an ambulance for possibly the last time and sense the solving emptiness that lies just under everything we do and for a moment get it whole, so permanent and blank and true. And those words and the large gin and tonic I bought in the pub somehow helped me process what had been an extremely traumatic and alarming incident in my life. So I think in some ways I was self-medicating from an early age.
5: I have to ask you, did he survive? He did,
6: yeah. Well, as far as I'm aware, at least, you know, um, after he went in the ambulance, I I, I knew no more. I wonder, listening
5: to you talk about uh, the power of poetry in that instance, whether it has
6: some of the same kind of salve and balm as music. I think it does. I have a feeling that we are born with different abilities to respond to different art forms and some people are visual and some are aural and some are literal and so forth and I know many people who say to me music is the answer for me I I lost my mother in the summer and um, I was as you could imagine grieving hard and I went to a concert at Snape and had someone play Mozart piano sonatas for two hours and I felt uh, not resolved, because you can't with grief, but I certainly felt as though it really helped me move on in some fundamental way. We're well, going to begin, uh, William, with Mozart, and this is a wonderfully lyrical, lilting, slow movement, isn't it? Yes, it really is. It's very, very moving. I couldn't do without Mozart in life. I think if I had to reduce my private passions to one, it would always be him. It's a piece I listen to when... Uh, I need a bit of um understanding and um thoughtfulness.
5: Music from the slow movement of Mozart's Piano Concerto Number 18. The soloist was the excellent Imogen Cooper, and she was also directing the Northern Sinfonia from the keyboard.
0: And Michael Barclay was talking to William Seacart. Just a reminder, though, that you're tuned to Heartland FM on 97.5, the digital access channel, heartland.scot, or if you're in one of the hospitals in the Dundee area, It's Bridge FM, that's how you'll be getting us. Uh, Wherever you are, welcome to Heartland FM and welcome to this programme. It's Heart and Soul with David Wilkie and me, Howard Simpson. Uh, As I said before, we're still working from home and Sam Ross is pulling it all together for us. Uh, Just a reminder also of our sister programme, Sounds Inspirational, Tuesday at 7 in the evening, repeated Thursday evening at 10. And uh, Drew Scott and family... Are uh, making the music for, or selecting the music rather for that particular one coming up shortly we'll be hearing uh, about about the jewish people so happens our next uh, singer is a uh, jew helen shapiro slightly unusual she's a messianic jew that means that she believes jesus is the messiah anyway here is Helen Shapiro, and great is thy faithfulness. is thy faithfulness as sung by helen shapiro but yes it's over to david again damien thompson of the spectator talks to
1: author and broadcaster norman lebrecht about the place of jewish thinkers in the culture of europe they also examine the recent resurgence of anti-jewish feeling in the country
7: i'm damien thompson My guest today is someone I've wanted to interview for years. He's a prize-winning novelist, a Talmudic scholar, a writer on classical music with special expertise in the works of Gustav Mahler. He writes the world's most provocative classical music blog, Slipped Disc. It can only be Norman Lebrecht, who, as of last year, is also a historian of the Jewish people. His book, Genius and Anxiety sets out to explain how a relatively small number of Jewish intellectuals and artists change the world in which we live. Norman, your book is a dazzling route through Jewish cultural and intellectual achievements. And in a way, having Jewishness as a common theme allows you to explore some extraordinary juxtapositions between the achievements of poets, nuclear scientists, mathematicians, musicians, political theorists, all of them Jewish, many of them working at the same time. And I would have said that if there is an underlying theme in your book, it's that a sense of anxiety, a sense of urgency, meant that Jewish thinkers were prepared to take intellectual and creative risks that wouldn't otherwise have been taken. Do you think that's fair enough? That's absolutely right. I mean, that's the anxiety
3: part of it. It's a question that's preoccupied me for, oh, more than half my life, probably two-thirds of my life. It's a very simple proposition. Between the middle of the 19th and the middle of the 20th century, about three dozen individuals changed the way that we see the world, whether it's the, the physical world, whether it's space and time, whether it's uh, the organisational world, how states are created, what is the role of the nation-state, whether it is science, whether it's the arts, in all of these things, there are about three dozen people who, are, who changed the weather, and about half of them are Jewish. Now, why is that? At that time, the Jewish percentage of the world population was 0.0002%. So, how do you explain this eruption? And no previous explanations have satisfied me. One is Jewish exceptionalism, which I can not only reject, but I disprove it in, in, in various ways. Yeah, Jews are in some way or other chosen. If that were the case, why is it that almost all of these Jews are Ashkenazi Jews... And hardly any of them were safari. If it was exceptionalism, then it would it would be you would see them across the board. Another is, well, it's to do with their liberation from the ghetto. No, they were liberated from the ghetto in the late 18th century, and particularly with Napoleon's march across Europe. So this is 60 years later. This is three generations later. So why is it just now, middle of the 19th century, that all of this starts to happen? And what is it that's impelling it? Where is the genius coming from? And why is it functioning in this particular way? And do I need to write this book? For most of my life, I thought about this book and thought, no, I don't need to write this. This is, all, this is sort of out there. And then suddenly the time is right and I really needed to write it. And that was it. You say suddenly the time is right. Mm-hmm. I think I can guess at what may
7: have changed in the landscape mm-hmm. to you to write this book which is a resurgence of anti-Semitism. Absolutely. Which is plain for everybody to see. Absolutely. Somebody of my
3: age, of my generation, born in this country in 1948 didn't really know the meaning of anti-Semitism. I mean, we, we, we just acted as if it was a thing of the past. And if it wasn't a thing of the past, it would surely have been crushed and buried by the terrible things the Germans had done by the Holocaust. And if ever I experienced animosity from somebody, I never thought that the animosity was anything to do with my Jewishness. It was probably to do with something that I said or written or done. And, oh, and, and, why? <laughs> exactly. and I brought it upon myself. So I, I, I never felt that I personally encountered anti-Semitism sure that a previous generation had done but i thought it's over it's a thing in the past and then the last four five years yes i mean the resurgence is there and however much politicians try to deny it no much they say well no 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 it's just isolated instances it's not isolated instances it's something in the air it's something in the water things that we thought were long dead and buried have got some kind of resurgence well, I, don't and we have to
7: I don't have a single jewish friend who's mm. not. We're not I aware of it. It's not of aware of it. Exactly. Irrespective, really. Of Absolutely.
3: Where they are Absolutely. Podiums, and it feels. It feels horribly personal, even though it isn't. Even though it's not directed at you as an individual, but every single instance that you see, whether it's the, the terrible things that have happened in Paris, whether it's the recent daubings here in London, whether it's the, the bombings in America or in South America, it feels personal. It feels personal. It, it is directed against Jews not just as individuals and not just as a people or as a faith. It's directed against Jews as an idea that the Jew is a threat. And that was really what impelled me to write the book, to look and see perhaps the other side. Let's see what the Jewish contribution is. Let's see how Jews in modern history have contributed to humanity and and illuminated humanity. And then let's see if this leads us to any clue as to why this Jew hatred
0: persists. And Damien Thompson was talking to Norman Lebrecht. Coming up, we'll be hearing about harvest in modern times, but meantime, here's Vangel with a, a crop and a harvest of a different kind, you could say. The song's inspired by a thought which is found in Psalm 126. It is, We Shall Come Rejoicing... Bringing in the sheaves. Sowing in the morning,
8: sowing seeds of kindness, sowing in the noontide and the dew eve. Waiting for the harvest and the time of reaping. We shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. Bringing in the sheaves, we're bringing in the sheaves. We shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. Bringing in the sheaves, we're bringing in the sheaves We shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves Sowing in the sunshine, sowing in the shadows Fearing neither clouds nor winter's chilling breeze By and by the harvest and the labour ended We shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves Bringing in the sheaves, we're bringing in the sheaves, we shall come rejoicing. Bringing in the sheaves, bringing in the sheaves, we're bringing in the sheaves, we shall come rejoicing. Bringing in the sheaves, Oh, Than ever weeping, sowing for the Master, though the loss sustained, our spirit often grieves. When our weeping's ended, he will bid us welcome. We shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. Ringing in the sheaves, we're bringing in the sheaves. We shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. We're Bringing in the sheaves we're bringing in the sheaves we shall come rejoicing bringing in the sheaves we're bringing in the sheaves we're bringing in the sheaves we shall come rejoicing bringing in the sheaves bringing in the sheaves we're bringing in the sheaves we shall come rejoicing
0: bringing in the sheaves that was Bringing in the Shoes, the title of that one from Vangel. And it's over to David once more.
1: Soundways Radio at Horsham in Sussex often send us programmes they have produced, courtesy of their manager, Ian Rose, usually at harvest and Christmas. Here's a talk by the Reverend Tim Carter about harvest in
9: modern times. And lest we're tempted to entertain nostalgic ideas about how good it was to bring the harvest in by hand, it's worth remembering that this was back-breaking work. Without mechanisation, harvesting is extremely labour-intensive, and there's no doubt at all that the use of machinery has made enormous improvements to farming efficiency. But at the same time, at least in the UK, this means that the majority of us have become consumers who are totally detached from the farmers who produce what we buy in the shops, And consumers have four concerns. Is it cheap? Is it safe to eat? Does it taste nice? Does it look appetising? As suppliers respond to these key consumer demands, it's the farmers who lose out. In England and Wales, nearly one in ten dairy farms has gone out of business in the past three years because some of them were having to sell milk at a price that was ten pence a litre less than the cost of production. And if we want our vegetables a certain size and shape... That means that farmers can't sell produce that doesn't conform to our consumer demands. That results in waste and makes it harder for farmers to make ends meet. And if you start to think about goods that are farmed in the developing world, then the stark reality is that unless we buy fairly traded goods, then we may be complicit in the exploitation of those who may be paid a mere pittance for their work on the land, or may even may be treated as slaves. Part of the Eco Church project that Gaynor mentioned earlier focuses on raising awareness of how our choices as consumers have far-reaching consequences, either for good or ill, for those at the sharp end of the production line. Horsham, where I live, used to be a farming town. Now, most of the farms have gone. The land's been turned into housing estates. The majority of people here are no longer involved in harvest, and celebrating a harvest festival can feel a bit quaint at times just another way in which the church shows its complete irrelevance to life in the 21st century. Yet without farmers we would starve. Not all that many of us even know how to grow our own vegetables these days. So as we trek round the supermarket, harvest gives us an opportunity to reflect how reliant we are actually on the farmers who produce all this stuff on our shelves, and correspondingly how we have a responsibility to support them by being prepared to pay fair prices for the goods we purchase. And maybe too, it gives us a chance to remember just how amazing harvest is. The miracle of how seeds germinate and turn into plants that bear fruit and grain. The strange truth that a brown cow could eat green grass and produce white milk. And the wonder that, that as far as we know, this is the only fertile planet in existence anywhere. So we do need to look after it extremely carefully. And maybe as well to worship the God without whom none of this would be here at all. So when you sit down to enjoy your next meal, just take a moment to reflect and thank God for the harvest.
0: Harvest in modern times, and that was the Reverend Tim Carter. And I did notice he did say, without the farmers we would starve, even if it is modern times. Anyway, that's our programme once again. Thank you for listening, and thanks too to Tim Carter there, Damien Thompson, Norman Lebrecht, Michael Barclay, William Sieghardt, Malcolm Gite and Larry Gentis, all for their contributions this morning. As usual, we wish you a good day, a good week and God's blessing. And we'll leave you this time with Daniel Donnell and Footsteps.
10: Footsteps walking with me Footsteps I cannot see But every move I make and every step I take I know they're there with me They walk with me all the way Beside me day by day Through good and bad, through happy and sad Those footsteps won't go away I'll never walk in life alone always be someone there I know he won't let me down he's with me everywhere the special things in life I have done have been through him and his love I've been blessed in so many ways thanks to the Lord above footsteps walking with me Steps I cannot see But every move I make And every step I take I know they're there with me They walk with me all the way Beside